We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 294 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, April 18th, 2022. It is the first day of the Commander's offseason program. Yes, today is the start of the ahem, voluntary offseason program program. Oh no, you don't have to attend. It is wink, wink, nod, nod, voluntary. You are voluntold to attend the off-season program. Uh, Now, the off-season program only begins with workouts, you know, no practices or anything like that. The off-season practices come later, but the Commander's players on Monday will be back at the Commander's team facility For the first time in months, and we shall see if the Predator, Chase Young, is in attendance. Uh, Him not being a regular participant in last season's off-season program became a thing, Uh, especially him not attending any of the non-mandatory off-season practices last off-season. Chase, of course, is coming off a torn right ACL, so it may not be that Chase could even do much in the Commander's off-season program this year, but his attendance will be a thing. I can promise you that. Whether his attendance should be a thing or not is up to you. I mean, I think it's not a big ask to ask him to be there, given his stature as a player, given the fact that he has been a captain. But don't forget what Ron Rivera said on March 29th at the NFL's annual league meeting in Palm Beach, Florida, said Don Ron of Chase Young's 2021 season, quote, I think for Chase, it was a little bit of an awakening, a little bit of a realization. For us, I think hopefully the realization that we hadn't arrived has set in and that just showing up is not good enough, And quote. Also, Ron said that Chase was expected to attend the commander's off-season practices, if not the entirety of the commander's off-season program this off-season. Quote, in my conversations with him, he says he's going to be here, and I'm pretty excited to see him here. And quote, remember, the only thing that's actually mandatory is attendance at the mandatory minicamp, 
and that's still months away. But just because something is not mandatory doesn't mean that you should not be there. So we shall see with Chase Young. Hello and welcome to a Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Hope you had a nice weekend. Hope you had a nice Easter if you celebrate Easter. Hope you're having a nice Passover if you celebrate Passover. Hope you're having a nice Ramadan if you celebrate Ramadan. We cover all the bases on this podcast. Uh, My wife and kids are coming back from their trip to my wife's parents. Uh, later today, the wife and kids will be back. So the weekend of Goldie is rapidly coming to an end. I had the house all to my lonesome over these last few days. Uh, it wasn't so bad, okay? It wasn't so bad. Now, would I want to live alone forever? No. But I tell you what, for a few days, it wasn't so bad. Uh, but today, as Soul to Soul said many years ago, it is back to life back to reality. But that's okay, because it's time to get focused on what's coming up, the 2022 NFL Draft. We thankfully, mercifully, over the last few days, had zero new developments in the many scandals of the commanders. But we did, over the last few days, have multiple developments regarding the commanders draft. And so I, on this show, will spend a good bit of time talking Commander's Draft. Next segment, USC receiver Drake London. Uh, He on Friday held his own personal pro day. The Commanders reportedly were there. And the Commanders reportedly will be welcoming the Drake for a visit this week. You know, we have talked about Ohio State receivers Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave. What about Drake London? Is he the top receiver in the 2022 draft? Would it be best for the Commanders if they took Drake London with their number 11 overall pick. Uh, Also, Nevada quarterback Carson Strong. It turns out that the Commanders reportedly held a private workout for Strong last week. Uh, Not sure if the Commanders wanted that out there, but that has come out. Uh, It doesn't seem likely that the Commanders will take a quarterback in the first round of the 2022 draft, but what about later in the draft? And would Carson Strong be that guy? Should he be that guy? Uh, Carson Strong is an intriguing prospect, but like Drake London, Strong has an injury concern. Uh, I'm also going to explore the reality about taking quarterbacks in rounds other than first rounds. Uh, Also on the show, the Capitals. How about our CAPS Caps, 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 they are going back to the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Caps on Sunday night clinching a playoff spot thanks to the New York Islanders 4-2 loss at the Toronto Maple Leafs. I will properly commemorate the Caps once again making the Stanley Cup playoffs. You know, the Caps never get enough credit for the frequency with which they make the playoffs. Uh, I'll also discuss the latest dominant victory for the Caps, an 8-4 win at the Montreal Canadiens on Saturday night. What is going on with the Caps? They lately either blow out a team or the Caps get blown out. Uh, I will talk Nationals. Disappointing weekend for them and ultimately losing three or four games at the Pittsburgh Pirates. I will talk Orioles. Good weekend for them in winning two or three games against the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Although we also need to get into the very troubling development with John Means, who uh, may well be done for the season. Terrible news. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the 
Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from CJ on my conversation with sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic on Friday's show, episode 293 on the commander's financial scandal. Uh, Daniel was very good in giving us an objective, sober analysis of the scandal, what we know, what we do not know. Right, CJ? What I heard from Kaplan proves Dan ain't going anywhere. Uh, You know what, CJ? That may be the case. I mean, as much as we all want a coup of the Danny, uh, it just may be that he's not going anywhere. We need to see and hear more about the scandal and what the actual evidence uh, is. A tweet from Rick Proctor off my chat with Daniel Kaplan, who made some news in our conversation in saying that Congress's House Committee on Oversight and Reform did not seek a response from the commanders before sending that letter to the Federal Trade Commission detailing the allegations from former Commander's team employee Jason Friedman. Kaplan also said that the committee, for some reason, won't give him the transcript of what Friedman said to the committee. So, writes Rick, why won't the committee release the documentation? Because it's a witch hunt. Uh, Yes, the witch hunt. Uh, You know, if I was advising Dan Snyder, I would advise him to play up this congressional involvement as a witch hunt, 100%. Now, uh, it doesn't matter if the congressional involvement is in fact a witch hunt, okay, since when does the truth actually matter, right? Uh, But from a public relations standpoint, like if you're trying to come up with an effective public relations tactic for our guy Danny with these scandals, especially with the congressional involvement in the scandals, I think that's the play. I think that's the PR play. Play up the congressional involvement as a witch hunt, okay? If I'm Team Danny, I am playing up Dan as a victim in a witch hunt by congressional Democrats. I'm framing congressional involvement as being completely political. There you go, Danny. Some PR advice, courtesy of the Al Galdi podcast and free of charge. Uh, email from Roger in South Texas, writes Roger, just wondering, did you hit up Danny Boy for a whole past weekend on this Home Alone weekend, LOL. Just kidding, just kidding. You don't need scandal in your life. We get enough of that from our beloved football team. Love the pod, take care. Well, thank you, Roger. Uh, No, I did not receive a whole pass for this past weekend. Maybe I should ask Dan Snyder for advice on that. Well, if you need advice when it comes to your skin, always know that Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are there for you. You know, skin cancer is among the most common of all cancers in the United States, but skin cancer also is among the most curable forms of cancer. Get checked, get screened, and someone who can very much help you with that is Dr. George Verghese. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist at Mohs Surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big fan of the Commanders. He's a loyal listener of this podcast and operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. In fact, Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer free skin cancer screenings and offer state-of-the-art treatments for skin cancer. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are the DMV's number one outlet for Mohs 
skin cancer surgery, and for superficial radiation therapy, or SRT, which is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. You won't find better, more state-of-the-art, or more comprehensive skin treatments and services than what you can get from Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Early detection and treatment of skin cancer save lives. If you have questions or concerns about your skin, call Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland at 301-396-3401. That's 301-396-3401. Make sure that you tell the Institute that Al Galdi sent you, but call 301 306-3401. 396-3401. You can also visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, so we now are a week and a half away from the 2022 NFL Draft, which will take place April 28th through the 30th in Las Vegas. The Commanders have the number 11 pick in the first round. In case you're curious, the Commanders' 2022 draft picks are as follows. A first-round pick, pick number 11 overall. A second-round pick, pick number 47 overall. A fourth-round pick, pick number 113 overall. A sixth-round pick, pick number 189 overall, a seventh round pick, pick number 230 overall, and another seventh round pick, pick number 240 overall. Uh, When it comes to the NFL draft, I'm a big believer in best player available, or BPA. I am a BPA guy. I don't mind IPAs, but I'm a big believer in BPA, best player available available. Uh, To me, an NFL team should almost always just take the best player available with a given draft pick. Uh, Drafting for need can create all kinds of problems, and you can get into all kinds of trouble when you draft for need. You know, needs for NFL teams are constantly changing depending on injuries and performance. What you think isn't a need now can very much become a need later. And so unless you're a Super Bowl contender that feels like it's a player or two away from winning a Super Bowl, to me, you really should abide by best player available when it comes to the NFL draft. Our commanders, unfortunately, are not Super Bowl contenders. Not yet, anyway. And so for the commanders with the number 11 pick in the 2022 draft, to me, it's simple. Best player available. Now, I'm not opposed to the commanders trading up if they really like a player. I'm certainly not opposed to the commanders trading down to accumulate more draft picks. As I just outlined, the commanders do not have a third-round pick, nor do they have a fifth-round pick. But if the commanders stay at 11, then they really do need to follow their draft board, which hopefully is sound, hopefully is accurate, and take the best player available. The commanders are not so good at any one position to where they should like thumb their nose at any position. And so regarding which position the commanders should address with their first round pick in the 2022 draft, I'm open to just about anything. Uh, As I've said, I do think that the commanders should be open to taking a quarterback at 11, uh, as they should be open to taking a player at any position 
on offense or defense at 11. But what seems to be a good possibility is the Commanders taking a receiver at 11. Uh, The 2022 draft appears to be loaded at receiver, and it just may be that the best player available at 11 will be a receiver. And so it's notable what happened this past Friday and what is going to be happening this week. So USC receiver Drake London on Friday held his own personal pro day, and the commanders reportedly were there. Uh, Among those in attendance, according to Commanders Insider John Keim of ESPN, were Commanders Executive Vice President of Football slash Player Personnel Marty Herney, Commanders Offensive Coordinator Scott Turner, and Commanders Receivers Coach Drew Terrell. Uh, So substantial representation for the Commanders at Drake London's personal pro day on Friday. And then on Saturday, we had multiple reports that the Commanders will be hosting Drake London for a visit in the coming week. Do you remember the Seinfeld episode with the Drake? Uh, We now must ask the question, do the Commanders love the Drake? Now, not everyone may like the Drake, but the Commanders sure seem to at least be interested in the Drake. I don't even like Drake. You don't like the Drake? I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. (laughs) Yes, the Drake is good. Uh, He is very good, though the Drake also is coming off injury. The top three receivers in the 2022 draft, according to most people, in some order, are the two Ohio State receivers, Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, and USC receiver Drake London. Ohio State's pro day was on March 23rd. Ron Rivera was there, and that stuck out because Ron has not attended many of these pro days. Drake London's personal pro day, as mentioned, was this past Friday. Ron reportedly was supposed to be there, but he reportedly was not there due to the pro day being moved. Uh, Drake London suffered a mild hamstring strain in early April, resulting in him moving his own personal pro day from April 5th to this past Friday, April 15th. Uh, Drake London's personal pro day was not USC's actual pro day. USC's actual pro day was on March 23rd. The concern with Drake London primarily is injury. Uh, Not so much this hamstring injury, with which he was recently dealing, but a major injury that he suffered this past Halloween weekend. Uh, London suffered a season-ending fractured right ankle in a 41-34 USC win over Arizona this past October 30th. Uh, London, in this pre-draft process, has not run an official 40-yard dash. He did not run a 40 at the NFL Scouting Combine. He did not run a 40 at his personal pro day this past Friday. So there is reason to be at least a little concerned with where London is at physically, but Drake London could be a monster in the NFL. Uh, You know, whereas Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave are smaller receivers, Drake London is a big receiver. Wilson at the combine measured as being five foot 11 and three quarters of an inch and 183 pounds. Olave at the combine measured as being six feet and three eighths of an inch and 187 pounds. London at the combine measured as being six foot three and seven eighths of an inch and 219 pounds. Uh, now, USC did list London as being six five, so he's not six five, but still, six foot three and seven eighths of an inch is tall for a receiver. And Drake London, prior to getting injured, 
this past college football season was putting up like video game numbers. Uh, London, over his eight games in the 2021 season, had 88 receptions for 1,084 yards and seven touchdowns. Yes, London, over just eight games, had 88 receptions for 1,084 yards and seven touchdowns. And his advanced stats were good, too. London, over his eight games in the 2021 season, had a receiving grade for Pro Football Focus of 91.8, which was the best receiving grade for a qualified Pac-12 player since PFF started grading college football in 2014. London, over his eight games in the 2021 season, had a grade in the slot for Pro Football Focus of 91.6, which ranked as the number one slot grade among all qualified receivers in the FBS. So note, Drake London could excel both in the slot and on the outside. Uh, Same for Garrett Wilson, by the way. Uh, Also, London played multiple sports at USC. Drake London played on USC's 2019-2020 basketball team. Here was ESPN NFL draft analyst Mel Kuyper Jr. on ESPN's Get Up a few weeks ago on Drake London, Garrett Wilson, and Chris Olave. Again, the consensus is that these three guys are the top three receivers in what appears to be a loaded 2022 draft in terms of receiver. Uh, Mel ranks these guys as Wilson 1, London 2, Olave 3. Take a listen. It's a strong group. It really is. And it's been a wild year and a wild ride because it's kind of changed because of injuries and who was the cleanest through the process. And that was Ohio State's Garrett Wilson. The way he ran at the combine, the way he performed at Ohio State, the most explosive wide receiver in this draft is Garrett Wilson. He also has the punt return experience. He's number seven on the big board overall. Drake London, he edges out. Drake London's at number eight. Why does Garrett Wilson edge out Drake London? Drake London had a fractured ankle October 30th against Arizona. Arizona. He had 88 catches in the eight games he played. He's that power forward. The contested catches will go his way. The smaller cornerbacks will have a tough time dealing with Drake London. He's at number eight on the big board. It was tough to decide between the two, but I went with Wilson because I said clean through the process. London a close second at number eight overall on the big board. And Chris Olave, I did not want to have a lot of separation between Wilson at seven and Olave. So I have Olave at 14. He has more career catches than Garrett Wilson. He averaged right about the same as Wilson. He had more touchdowns this year. A professional in every sense of the word, ready to play immediately as a rookie. Got to like everything about Chris Olave if he goes in that 11 to 15 area. And interesting to hear Mel Kuyper Jr. say that Chris Olave will be drafted in the 11 to 15 area. Of course, our commanders have the number 11 pick. There is a lot to like with all three of these receivers. Drake London, Garrett Wilson, and Chris Olave. Wilson at the combine ran a 4-3-8-40. Olave at the combine ran a 4-3-9-40. By the way, Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave became just the second pair of receiver teammates since 2006 to run sub 4-4-40s at the same combine. The only other duo, Terry McLaurin and Paris Campbell of Ohio State at the 2019 Combine. So the Buckeyes these days are pumping out plenty of receivers with speed. And you think about what a commander's receiving core featuring three Buckeyes and Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, and either Garrett Wilson or Chris Olave could look like in terms of speed. You know, you throw Deami Brown in the mix, you would have four Blazers in your commander's receiving core were the commanders to draft 
either Garrett Wilson or Chris Olave. Remember, the commanders on April 7th reportedly were to have hosted Olave for a visit. So the commanders are spending at least two of their top 30 visits on these receivers. And who knows, maybe Wilson has visited or will visit as well. As I have said, I do not view receiver as the screaming need for the commanders that other people view the position as for the team. But that doesn't mean that the commanders are like set at receiver. Uh, They certainly can be better at receiver. And if Rod Rivera and his crew believe that the best player available when the commander's number 11 overall pick comes up on April 28th is one of these receivers, then by all means, take them. Well, if you have been wronged, then you, by all means, should contact the law firm of Paulson and Nace. The law firm of Paulson and Nace is always there for you. If you've been wronged, Paulson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. And Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yet you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule your no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. Just make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. Thank you to everyone for listening to the Al Galdi podcast. Always know that you can subscribe to the podcast. Subscribing costs you nothing and make sure that you never miss an episode and make sure that you never have to worry about finding or downloading an episode. We continue our Commander's Draft conversation right now. We on Friday had an interesting report from our friend, our buddy, our pal, Commander's Insider Ben Standing of The Athletic. Uh, Ben on Friday reported that the Commanders last week held a private draft workout for Nevada quarterback Carson Strong and Nevada tight end Cole Turner. Uh, Among those in attendance for the Commanders was their offensive coordinator, Scott Turner. Uh, Now, a point of clarification here. Each NFL team in the weeks leading up to an NFL draft is allowed to invite up to 30 different prospects to come to the team facility to meet with executives and coaches and undergo a physical. These allowed 30 visits are called top 30 visits. The commander's private workout with Carson Strong did not take place at their team facility and was not considered a top 30 visit. In fact, the belief is that the commanders haven't had a single quarterback in for a top 30 visit. NFL insider Albert Breer of the MMQB last Monday night reported, quote, that the commanders aren't bringing any quarterback prospects into Ashburn 
for a top 30 visit. It could mean one of a few things. Either they're all in on Carson Wentz. They don't like the draft class, which would influence being all in on Wentz, of course, or they're trying to conceal their interest in someone. They pick 11th, so most of the top guys should be there when they're picking End quote. Uh, So a few things off all of that. A, it is smart of the commanders to, whenever possible, not burn a top 30 visit if they can instead hold a private workout for a guy or, in this case, guys, because the commanders per Ben Standing worked out both Carson Strong and Cole Turner. But these top 30 visits are precious. You want to spend them wisely. B, what does it mean that the commanders aren't bringing in any quarterbacks for a top 30 visit. Albert Breer hit on the possibilities, mainly that the commander is not bringing in any quarterbacks for a top 30 visit is because the commanders are all in on Carson Wentz, or that the commanders not bringing in any quarterbacks for a top 30 visit is the commanders engaging in subterfuge, and they do not want their interest in a quarterback or quarterbacks out there. Uh, Whatever the case, we do know that the commanders have at least some interest and Carson Strong. By the way, the commanders also reportedly met with Carson Strong during the week of the Senior Bowl. Uh, The Senior Bowl took place this past February 5th. Now, Carson Strong is not a candidate to be taken by the commanders with their number 11 overall pick in the 2022 NFL Draft. Uh, Strong is projected to be a day two, maybe even a day three pick, but the commanders taking Strong would fit in With what Rod Rivera has said, the commanders having a rookie quarterback or a young quarterback as part of their quarterback mix. Rod Rivera told Ben Standig prior to the NFL scouting combine that the commander's quarterback depth chart plan was a veteran, another veteran, and likely a rookie. Well, the commanders have their two veteran quarterbacks in Carson Wentz and Taylor Heineke, so Carson Strong would check the box of having a rookie slash young quarterback. Uh, Carson Strong, to me, is a fascinating quarterback prospect. He is like basically a mobile, but his arm talent is spectacular. Uh, the big concern with Strong is the right knee. Uh, Carson Strong underwent right knee surgery in February 2021 and then underwent a right knee arthroscopy in August 2021. Uh, Senior Bowl director Jim Nagy this past December 17th tweeted the following on Strong's knee. Quote, plenty of speculation here about status of Nevada QB Carson Strong's knee. He had surgery February 21st and rushed back to play this fall despite normal 10-month recovery time. Recently saw an NFL team doc who told him there was zero cause for long-term concern after clean MRI. End quote. So that all sounds very good. I mean, I think it is important to keep in mind that Jim Nagy is not a guy who is going to be going out of his way to put out negative things about prospects. Uh, It obviously would be of utmost importance that the commanders feel good about Carson Strong's medicals before spending a draft pick on him. And if the team doesn't feel good about the condition of his right knee, then the commanders shouldn't touch Carson Strong. Plain and simple. I mean, the last thing that our commanders need is another player with a chronic injury or another player who is constantly injured or another player who just is never quite healthy. Uh, Also, even if Strong doesn't have a chronic right knee problem, he was a total non-factor as a runner 
in college. This is really something. So college football inexplicably counts yardage lost on sacks as rushing yardage for quarterbacks. But consider this, strong over his three seasons as Nevada's starting quarterback, 2019 through 2021, totaled minus 309 rushing yards. You heard that right. Minus 309 rushing yards. Negative 309 rushing yards. Now, obviously, that's a function of the sacks that Strong took. But the point is that basically his only rushing yardage in college was yardage lost on sacks. He basically didn't generate any positive rushing yardage. He was a total non-thread as a runner. Now, that to me is not a deal breaker with a quarterback, but that to me is a major negative with a quarterback. Having a quarterback who is a legitimate run threat is a huge plus in today's NFL. We obviously all saw this firsthand with Robert Griffin III in his spectacular 2012 rookie season, and we've seen it a bunch since with other quarterbacks in the NFL. If you have a quarterback who is a run threat, defenses have to be thinking about the possibility of him running on any given play, and not just running as a scrambler, but running as an actual runner on a read option play. One of the major reasons that RG3 was so successful in his rookie season was that every time he lined up in the shotgun or the pistol, and that was most of the time, the defense had to at least consider the possibility that what was coming next was a read option play on which Robert could keep the ball and run for a first down. I mean, think about so many of the stud quarterbacks in the NFL right now. You know, Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen and Russell Wilson and Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray. They're all major run threats. You and Carson Strong would have a total non-thread of a runner. But if the commanders do feel at least reasonably good about Carson Strong's right knee, and if the commanders can live with him being a total non-threat of a runner, uh, then there is a lot to like with Strong. As a quarterback, uh, Carson Strong clearly has one of the strongest arms among the quarterbacks in the 2022 NFL Draft. The last name is quite fitting for Carson Strong. Uh, Carson Strong and Malik Willis have the strongest arms in this quarterback class. Carson Strong in the 2020 college football season for Pro Football Focus had the farthest throw in terms of air yards, nearly 70 yards. Think about that. A throw with nearly 70 yards air yards. Uh, Strong at the 2022 NFL Scouting Combine measured as being six foot three and three eighths of an inch and 226 pounds. So, you know, Carson Strong is your prototypical big strong arm quarterback. Uh, Carson Strong is an experienced quarterback who was very good in each of his final two collegiate seasons. Uh, Strong was a three-year starting quarterback for Nevada, 2019 through 2021. He over his final two seasons was terrific. Uh, Strong in his 2020 redshirt sophomore season at 27 touchdown passes versus four interceptions, a yards per pass attempt of 8.05, a completion percentage of 70.1, and Strong in his 2021 redshirt junior season, 36 touchdown passes versus eight interceptions, a yards per pass attempt of eight, and a completion percentage of 70. Point one. There's also this, Carson Strong threw a lot of passes 
this past college football season. Strong for the 2021 college football season for sports reference, ranked number four in the FBS in pass attempts with 522. And the 522 pass attempts came over 12 games. Uh, So that's an average of 43.5 pass attempts per game. So Carson Strong is a guy who has had to carry an offense. You know, this isn't a guy who had a great running game and a great defense and just had to not screw everything up. No, Carson Strong was the star. He was the main eventer, you know? He was the straw that stirred the drink. Nearly 44 pass attempts per game, and he delivered. Uh, For comparison's sake, Desmond Ritter of Cincinnati for the 2021 season averaged just 27.6 pass attempts per game. And that's not to say that there aren't things to like about Ritter because his stock has been on the rise, but I like having a quarterback who, if you need him to throw 50 pass attempts at a game, is more than capable of thriving by throwing 50 pass attempts in a game. Now, there's a larger phenomenon to be aware of with the Commanders potentially drafting Carson Strong. As we've discussed on this podcast, the hit rate on quarterbacks in first rounds of NFL drafts is bad. Uh, Well, the hit rate on non-first-round quarterbacks in NFL drafts is worse, uh, a lot worse. The percentage of non-first-round quarterbacks who become franchise quarterbacks is really small. I mean, to me, no franchise quarterback needy team should ever plan on getting a franchise quarterback in a non-first round. Like, if you somehow find a franchise quarterback in a non-first round, great, more power to you, but the history is undeniable. I mean, here is the list of non-first round franchise quarterbacks taken in NFL drafts over the last 10 years. Uh, Russell Wilson, Kirk Cousins, Derek Carr, and Dak Prescott. That's it, okay? Four guys. There were 115 quarterbacks taken in NFL drafts from 2012 through 2021. As things stand right now, a mere four out of the 115 quarterbacks taken over the last 10 NFL drafts are non-first-round franchise quarterbacks. You know, we had a nice run from 2012 through 2016 of non-first-round quarterbacks becoming franchise quarterbacks. Uh, Russell Wilson, Kirk Cousins, Derek Carr, Dak Prescott. But that run appears to have been more of an anomaly than anything else, especially what happened in 2012, right, with two non-first-round quarterbacks in Russell Wilson in the third round and Kirk Cousins in the fourth round becoming franchise quarterback. So you have to keep this in mind with the commanders taking a quarterback on day two or day three of the 2022 draft. Taking a developmental quarterback sounds nice, but the truth is that it is very rare for these developmental quarterbacks to become anything other than backup quarterbacks. And you know what? You do need backup quarterbacks. I mean, I'm a big believer in the commanders needing to have three viable quarterback options on the team, not two. I mean, just look at the last four seasons for our team. Uh, Washington has started at least three different quarterbacks in each of the last four seasons. 2018, Alex Smith, Colt McCoy, Mark Sanchez, and Josh Johnson. 2019, Case Keenum, Colt McCoy, and Dwayne Haskins. 2020, Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, and Alex Smith. And then in the postseason, Taylor Heineke. And 2021, 
Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, and Garrett Gilbert. So yeah, I mean, especially for our team, you need three viable quarterback options. But just understand the truth about taking quarterbacks in rounds other than first rounds in NFL drafts. Up next, the Capitals. They have clinched a spot in the Stanley Cup playoffs again. Uh, I will pay proper homage to one of the great runs in sports continuing and a look at the Caps' crazy recent results, some dominant wins and some blowout losses. What's going on with the Caps? I'll get to that more after this. All right, so like so many of you, I work out, I try to eat healthy, I want to be healthy, but like so many of you, I'm busy, you know, two podcasts, two young kids, crazy hours, a house, you know how it is. Uh, We want to be healthy, but we have like a million things going on, and so that's why I leave my meals to Factor. Factor is the ultimate meal plan for people who want to be healthy, but who don't have the time to be planning and prepping meals. And Factor right now is offering a great deal to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Factor makes it easy to eat clean 24-7 with fresh, never-frozen, prepared meals that are so delicious you wouldn't believe that they're actually good for you. Factor saves you time by delivering chef-crafted meals right to where you live, eliminating the hassle of grocery shopping and meal prep, Uh, not to mention cleanup, no dishes to wash. Each Factor meal arrives pre-prepared and ready to eat in two minutes. It's even faster than ordering in. And Factor meals are put together by registered dietitians and expert chefs who work hand-in-hand to create meals with nutritious ingredients. Also, you won't get bored with Factor. Uh, Factor offers more than 29 meal options each week. Uh, Factor knows my preferences. My favorites are the buffalo chicken, the keto chili, and the Santa Fe beef bowl. Especially for those of you who work out, want to eat clean, want to put on muscle, Factor is perfect for you. So here's what you do. Visit go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. Yeah, you heard that right. $120 off. That's go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. Hey, especially with inflation, who couldn't use saving $120 right now? Give Factor a try. Save yourself $120 and tell me what you think. Visit go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. You got to try Factor because fitness starts with food. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So, among the results in the NHL on Sunday night was the New York Islanders losing at the Toronto Maple Leafs 4-2. The Islanders losing in regulation clinched a playoff spot for the Capitals. Uh, Yeah, the Caps officially are going to the Stanley Cup playoffs again. uh, What we all knew was coming now is official. Uh, The Caps now have made the Stanley Cup playoffs in each of the last eight seasons. The Caps now have made the Stanley Cup playoffs in 14 of the last 15 seasons, but nothing to me with the Caps making the postseason is more remarkable than this. The Caps now have made the Stanley Cup playoffs in 32 of the last 39 seasons. Uh, How about that? The Caps now have made the playoffs in 32 of the last 39 seasons. For nearly four decades now, the Caps have been making the Stanley Cup playoffs nearly every year. And you can say that a lot of NHL teams make the Stanley Cup playoffs each season. And you're right, eight teams in each conference make the Stanley Cup playoffs each season. But what I say back to you is, look up how often the Caps have made the Stanley Cup playoffs as a result of a division title. Uh, Now, the Caps likely aren't winning the Metropolitan Division this season, but if you look at the Caps' previous 13 postseason appearances, 10 of those postseason appearances were a result of the Caps having won their division. The Caps haven't made the Stanley Cup playoffs in 32 of the last 39 seasons solely because eight teams in each conference make the Stanley Cup playoffs each season. The Caps have made the Stanley Cup playoffs in 32 of the last 39 seasons because the Caps have been one of the better run organizations in the NHL and really in all of sports. Uh, Now look, would it be nice if the Caps had advanced past the second round more than three times out of the team's previous 31 playoff appearances? Uh, Heck yeah. You know, the Caps' lack of success in the Stanley Cup playoffs has not been good. And if not for the Caps' Stanley Cup title in 2018, we would look at the Alex Ovechkin era in a much different way. Trust me, I am a lifelong Caps fan. I am well aware of the postseason fails of my hockey team, but I'm also aware that it's not easy, nor is it common, for a team to make the Stanley Cup playoffs 32 times in 39 seasons. And so I appreciate what the Caps have done. Uh, As for how the Caps are playing right now, well, good luck figuring that out. Uh, So the Caps are 42-23-10 and and have 94 points, three points behind 
the Boston Bruins to the top wildcard spot in the Eastern Conference, three points behind the Pittsburgh Penguins for third in the Metropolitan Division. But the Caps have been extremely up and down lately in terms of game results. Uh, So the Caps on Saturday night in game two of a five-game road trip won at the Montreal Canadiens, 8-4. A great win for the Caps, obviously. The Caps, with that win, improved to 23-8-5 on the road this season, which was good for the highest road points percentage in the NHL. The Caps this season have been terrific on the road, but take a step back and consider what has happened with the Caps over the last three weeks. Uh, The Caps suffered back-to-back hideous losses, a 6-1 loss to the Carolina Hurricanes at Capital One Arena on March 28th, then a 5-1 loss to the Minnesota Wild at Capital One Arena on April 3rd. Then came the Caps putting together a season-high tying four-game winning streak that began with three wins over teams ahead of the Caps in the Eastern Conference standings. Uh, We had a 4-3 win over the Tampa Bay Lightning at Capital One Arena on April 6th. We had a 6-3 win at the Pittsburgh Penguins on April 9th. We had a 4-2 win over the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena on April 10th. And then came a 9-2 smashing of the Philadelphia Flyers at Capital One Arena last Tuesday night. But then came a terrible loss for the Caps, a 7-3 loss at the Toronto Maple Leafs this past Thursday night. And now we have this 8-4 win at the Montreal Canadiens this past Saturday night. Uh, You could say that the Caps have been a high-variance team in recent weeks, but the Caps on Saturday night were great. Uh, The Caps on Saturday night dominated the puck possession battle over the final two periods. The Caps for the game per natural stat trick had 54 five-on-five shot attempts to the Canadiens' 42, including 18 five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Canadiens' seven. Uh, But the Caps, over the final two periods, had 38 five-on-five shot attempts to the Canadiens' 24. Uh, The Caps for the game totaled 41 shots on goal to the Canadiens' 32. The Caps, over the final two periods, had 34 shots on goal to the Canadiens' 17. Uh, The Caps on Saturday night, 2-6 on the power play. So the Caps now, since the start of March, are 19 of 66, 28.8% on the power play. A number of Caps on Saturday night had big performances. Uh, Defenseman Dmitry Orloff was back. He returned from a two-game absence caused by a lower body injury. He had four points. Uh, Not bad for your return game, a four-point night. Uh, Dmitry Orloff had a third-period even-strength goal and three assists. The Caps do remain without two forwards. Carl Haglin remains out indefinitely off having undergone left eye surgery on March 1st. Joe Snively remains out due to a left wrist injury. The Caps on March 6th announced that Snively had undergone a left wrist procedure and would be out four to six weeks. But Orloff on Saturday night was back. It was big. Uh, Speaking of being back from injury, Anthony Mantha on Saturday night scored two second period even strength goals just 34 seconds apart. He had two assists and he generated a game-high tying five shots on goal. Also, Mantha, per natural stat trick, was number three on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game at 69.57. The Caps with Mantha on the ice in five-on-five situations in the game had 16 shot attempts versus allowing seven shot attempts. Uh, Remember, Mantha missed four months due to shoulder surgery that he underwent this past November 5th. Uh, He's been back for about a month and a half now, and he looked great 
on Saturday night. This was Caps head coach Peter Laviolette during his postgame press conference on Saturday night on Anthony Mantha. Yeah, I mean, it was a really tough injury and um, a lot of rehab. And sometimes when you go into those long injuries with rehab, there's no light at the end of the window. And then, you know, you start to see him get back on the ice. And um, it's really good having him back because of his size, because of the way he can be physical, his skill level, and the way he can contribute to our team and help our team when he's on his game. It's nice to see him get back and get into a rhythm and, and be able to contribute. Those injuries are tough when you have a, an injury like he did. It's tough. Um, it's a long road. There's a lot of work that goes into it. And uh, it's nice to see a guy come out of it and do some good things. Yeah, it is nice to see that. Uh, Alex Ovechkin in the Caps 8-4 win at the Canadiens on Saturday night scored another goal. Uh, He had a second period even strength goal and a game-high tying 10 shot attempts. Ovechkin's goal, his 47th goal of the season, moving him to within one goal of tying Timu Solani in 2006-2007 for the most goals by a player age 36 or older in a regular season in NHL history. And the goal moved Ovechkin to within three goals of an NHL record-tying ninth 50-goal regular season. Here was Peter Laviolette during his postgame press conference on Saturday night on what Ovechkin closing in on a record-tying 50-goal regular season means to the Caps. You know, there's not... We don't ever talk about things like that, you know, inside the room, but everybody knows exactly where he's at. Um, they know what he gives every night uh, as a player for our team. And they're, they're excited for him when he does, when he does good things and, you know, he moves past somebody or he sets a record for something. Our guys are, you know, genuinely happy that he's, he's had such a career that he's in this position later in his career where he's actually knocking some things down and um, our guys get excited about that. Yeah, and they should. Uh, Genny Kuznetsov on Saturday night reached a milestone of his own. 50 assists. Uh, Kuzi had two primary assists, giving him 51 assists this season. Uh, Kuznetsov became just the sixth player in Caps history to have at least four 50 assist regular seasons. On and on I could go. I mean, a bunch of Caps were productive on Saturday night. Vinit Tupik uh, would be the goaltending. I know, shock face. Uh, Vitek Vanacek on Saturday night was a cap starting goaltender for just a second time in six games. He gave up four goals. He stopped just 28 of the 32 shots on goal that he faced. And the Caps went 2-2 two two on the penalty kill. So it's not like Vanacek was giving up a bunch of power play goals or anything like that. He per natural stat trick Gave up two goals on high danger shots on goal, a goal on a medium danger shot on goal, and a goal on a low danger shot on goal. But I mentioned the Caps going 2-2 two two on the penalty kill. The Caps now, since the start of March, are 50-58 of 58 on the penalty kill. Uh, that's outstanding. Also, the Caps on Saturday night were physical. Uh, the Caps out hit the Canadiens 34-21. Garnett Hathaway had a game-high six hits and a third period even strength goal. And so the Caps are going back to the Stanley Cup playoffs 32nd time in 39 seasons. I mean, that really is ridiculous. Uh, Next up for the Caps is game three of their five-game road trip. And that game is on Monday night. The Caps will be at the Colorado Avalanche, Monday night at nine. Well, go figure the Nationals. Uh, they won two of three games at the reigning, defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves. And then the Nats lost three of four games at the 
Lowly Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, disappointing four-game series for the Nats in the Berg. Uh, Thursday evening, a 9-4 loss. Friday evening, a 7-2 win. But Saturday evening, a 6-4 loss. And Sunday afternoon, a 5-3 loss. Nats now are 4-7 and seven on the season. Two things are really hurting the Nats right now. Number one, the Nats are getting painfully little length from their starting pitchers. Now, this isn't surprising, okay? We all went into this NAD season figuring that the pitching, especially the starting pitching, uh, was going to be problematic. But this is notable. The longest outing for a NAD starting pitcher through 11 games this season is five and a third innings. That's it. And yes, some of that is a function of the shortened spring training off the lockout, but a lot of that is just the starting pitchers not being very good. Five and a third innings. That is the longest any Nats starting pitcher has lasted in any of the Nats' 11 games so far this season. Number two, the Nats are not hitting for, like, any power. Uh, the Nats through 11 games have a team slugging percentage of just 324. The Nats over 11 games have totaled just seven home runs. Now, I do expect the Nats to hit this season, okay? I'm actually not that worried about the Nats' offense, but if you're analyzing what has happened so far, uh, the Nats are not hitting for, like, any power so far this season, um, and that's a problem. That's a big problem. So let's talk about the starting pitching. Uh, Yoan Adone in the Nats' 9-4 loss at the Pirates on Thursday evening allowed six runs in four and two-thirds innings. Eric Fetty in the Nats' 7-2 win at the Pirates on Friday evening allowed two runs in five innings. Josh Rogers in the Nats' 6-4 loss at the Pirates on Saturday evening allowed three runs in four and a third innings. Patrick Corbin in the Nats' 5-3 loss at the Pirates on Sunday afternoon allowed two runs in five and a third innings. So you look at the Nats starting pitching in this four-game series at the Pirates. Joanna Doan was bad in game one. Josh Rogers was bad in game three, but Eric Fetty was pretty good in game two. Patrick Corbin was pretty good in game four. But again, no Nats starting pitcher has exceeded five into third innings in any outing this season. Uh, baseball games, as you likely know, are nine innings. So even when a Fetty or a Corbin is good, the bullpen gets leaned on quite a bit. The Nats are in the midst of a season opening stretch of 18 games in 18 days. Not every reliever is going to be on every day. And so not surprisingly, Nats relievers are giving stuff up. Now, the Nats bullpen overall hasn't been terrible lately, but it is such a big ask for every game, three to five Nats relievers to have to pitch and pitch well. There are very few bullpens in all of Major League Baseball that would be up to that task of every game providing three to five good outings from relievers. Uh, now, the Nats bullpen in that 7-2 win at the Pirates on Friday evening was excellent. Uh, three Nats relievers in that game combined for four scoreless innings, three of which were perfect innings. Uh, Sean Doolittle tossed a perfect bottom of the sixth on 14 pitches, 11 of which were strikes. Austin Vogt tossed two perfect innings with two strikeouts. He tossed a perfect bottom of the seventh on 11 pitches. He tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts. Paolo Espino tossed a scoreless bottom of the ninth. But then we had a Nats reliever struggle in each of the final two games in the series. The 6-4 loss on Saturday evening. Kyle Finnegan in the bottom of the eighth gave up three runs, two earned, got just two outs. The 5-3 loss on Sunday afternoon. Steve Ciszek in the bottom of the seventh allowed three runs 
and got just one out. Other Nats relievers did well in those games, but again, when you're using three to five relievers per game, not every reliever is going to be on every game. Not every reliever is going to have it every game. Remember what relievers are. Relievers are failed starting pitchers. Relievers are second-class pitching citizens. To anticipate that you're going to have three to five of these guys every game being good is just unrealistic. Uh, Nats relievers over 11 games have totaled 45 and a third innings. That is a high innings total for a bullpen over 11 games. Uh, Also, the Nats over the weekend had some major defensive problems. So I mentioned Kyle Finnegan on Saturday evening in the bottom of the eighth, giving up three runs, two earned, and getting just two outs. Uh, In fairness to Finnegan, he was plagued by some bad defense. Uh, Finnegan gave up a first pitch leadoff triple to Michael Chavis to left field. Yadiel Hernandez was playing left field at the time for the Nats, and Yadiel took about an hour and a half to get to the baseball and fire it back into the infield. Nats manager Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters let it be known that he was not happy with Yadiel and that he had summoned Yadiel to Davey's office. Yes, Yadiel got called to the principal's office for his conduct on that Michael Chavis triple on Saturday evening. Then later in the inning, Finnegan gave up an RBI single to Diego Castillo for a 4-2 Pirates lead on a grounder that got by the Nats shortstop. Alcides Escobar with the Nats infield drawn in. Um, Escobar, to me, has not looked sharp defensively so far this season. He has looked older. He has looked slow to react. You know, he's not necessarily committing a bunch of errors, but as we have discussed, you can't judge a player's defense solely on his errors. Uh, Escobar looks kind of old and slow and slow to react uh, so far defensively in the field this season. And then Finnegan allowed two runs on a one-out force-out off a grounder by Andrew Knapp as Cesar Hernandez committed a throwing error in throwing to first. But also on that play, you could argue that Michael Franco should have thrown home instead of to Hernandez at second base. So some sloppy defense by the Nats in that Pirates three-run eighth inning on Saturday evening. And I mentioned Michael Franco. How about what went down with Franco in the Nats 5-3 loss at the Pirates on Sunday afternoon? What a game for Michael Franco, and I don't mean that in a good way. Uh, so Michael Franco is an at starting third baseman these days. He on Sunday afternoon had one of the crazier games that you'll ever see a baseball player have. Franco was an at starting third baseman and number five batter. He went one for three with a double and a walk, and he had a whacked out game in the field. Franco on Sunday afternoon committed three errors, but he also made a sparkling defensive play. Uh, Franco in the Nats three-run second drew a one-out eight-pitch walk. Franco in the bottom of the second made two errors on one play as he mishandled a Diego Castillo grounder and then committed a throwing error in throwing to first base. Franco then made a very good defensive play to end the bottom of the fourth with a runner on first two outs and the Nats leading 3-0. Franco made a diving backhanded stab of a Diego Castillo grounder and then Franco from his left knee while falling forward fired to first base for the out. I mean, an excellent defensive play by Michael Franco there, but then Franco committed his third error of the game in mishandling a Jake Marisnik grounder to begin the bottom of the sixth. Uh, And then Franco in the top of the seventh had a two-out double to left field, but Josh Bell on the play got thrown at at home for the third out. So all kinds of things were happening with Michael Franco on Sunday afternoon. There was a lot going on with old Mikey Franco 
on Sunday afternoon. But bottom line, the defense left a lot to be desired. And Davey Martinez, not at all pleased with Franco's and the Nats defense in this game. Take a listen to some of Davey during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday. I mean, the defense was not, not good today. Uh, we had a chance to turn double plays, uh, pass ball with, with C-Shack there. Um, you know, if, if that doesn't happen, we're playing back, double play ball. So um, those are those little things we got to clean up. I mean, we're not, not going to uh, – we can't give teams extra outs, um, and we're not going to win games like that. So, we, we you know, like I always say we got to get 27 outs, not 30, not 31. Um, so we got to clean those things up. All right, as for some other Nats position players, uh, good weekend for Juan Soto. The best hitter on the planet continued to hit. Uh, Soto was the Nats starting right fielder and number two batter in every game in the series. Soto in the 7-2 win at the Pirates on Friday evening got on base four times. Uh, Soto went two for three with two singles and a walk. Soto in the 6-4 loss at the Pirates on Saturday evening got on base four times. Uh, Soto went two for three with a leadoff homer, a double, and two walks. And how about the homer? Soto in the top of the fifth smashed a leadoff homer on a line drive to right field to tie the game at two, despite having been down to the count at one point, one, two. The home run per stat cast traveled at 108.4 miles per hour. And get this, the homer went into the Allegheny River. Soto became just the 43rd player to homer into the Allegheny River in the 2022 regular seasons of PNC Park, which opened with the 2001 season. So it's not so much that Soto hit this like Ruthian clout that flew into the Pittsburgh night. No, Soto just scorched the baseball to where it flew through PNC Park and ended up going into the Allegheny River. Again, 108.4 miles per hour for StatCast, and then late in the game, uh, Soto in the Nats' two-run ninth, an opposite field double to left field, despite having been down at the count at one point, 0-2. Uh, Soto in the 5-3 loss at the Pirates on Sunday afternoon, 0-3 with two walks and two strikeouts. Uh, Soto over 11 games this season, batting average of 289, on-base percentage of 460, slugging percentage of 553. He wasn't hitting for much power super early in the season, but some of that power started to come over the weekend. Uh, the ex-Pirate, Josh Bell, he had a good series at the Pirates. Bell was an at starting first baseman and number four batter in every game in the series. Bell on Friday evening, two for four with two singles and a walk. Bell on Saturday evening, one for three with an RBI single and a walk. Bell on Sunday afternoon, two for four with two singles and a walk, including in the top of the fifth, having a two-out opposite field single to left center field, despite having been down to the count at one point, one, two. Oh, the single came off Pirates reliever Will Crow. And if that name sounds familiar, it should. Will Crow was part of the trade package that the Nats sent to the Pirates for Bell on Christmas Eve 2020. So Josh Bell getting a hit off one of the players for whom Bell was traded a few years ago. Uh, Josh Bell is off to a great start to this season. 11 games this season. Bell has an OPS of 9 94. We are, though, still waiting on Nelson Cruz to get going, and he will get going. But for now, he has not gotten going to the extent that we know Cruz can get going. Uh, Cruz was an at starting DH and number three batter in every game in the series. He on Friday evening went two for four with two singles, a walk, and three RBI. That was good. But Cruz on Saturday evening, 0 for five, left four men on base. Cruz on Sunday afternoon, one for five with a single. Cruz over 10 games this season as an OPS 
of just 523. A rough weekend for Kbert Ruiz. He was an ad starting catcher and number five batter in each of the first three games in the series. Ruiz on Friday evening, 0 for 5 left six men on base. Ruiz on Saturday evening, 0 for 5, left five men on base. Ruiz in the Nats, two-run ninth grounded into a one-out RBI force out. Riley Adams in the 5-3 loss at the Pirates on Sunday afternoon was an at starting catcher and number eight batter. He went one for two with an RBI single, a walk, and a hit by pitch. A solid series for Lane Thomas. He started every game in the series. He was an at starting center fielder in each of the first two games of the series. He was an at starting left fielder in each of the final two games in the series. Thomas uh, actually got on base in every game in the series. I mentioned Thomas being the at starting center fielder in each of the first two games in the series. Yes, Victor Robles did not start either of the first two games in the series. He was doing some work with the Nats hitting coach, Darnell Coles, and didn't end up starting a game in this series until game three. He was an ad starting center fielder, a number nine batter in each of the final two games in the series. And Robles did look better over those two games. Uh, Robles on Saturday evening, 0 for 2 with a walk, but he also hit into some bad luck. He in the top of the six with a runner on third, two outs, and the Nats trailing 3-2 had a hard luck first pitch line out to the Pirates' second baseman, Diego Castillo. It was telling, though, that David Martinez in the top of the eighth pinch hit for Robles with Yadiel Hernandez in a big spot. Runner on first, two outs, Nats trailing 3-2. Yadiel ended up grounding out to Pirates third baseman, Key Brian Hayes, in a shift. And then Robles on Sunday afternoon, one for three with a two-run single. And yes, you did hear that right. I did say one for three. Victor Robles in the Nats three-run second on Sunday afternoon, a one-out, two-run single, through the left side of the infield for his first hit of the 2022 regular season and for a 3-0 Nats lead. Yeah, the Nats were up 3-0 in this game on Sunday afternoon, ended up blowing a 3-0 six-inning lead, but Victor Robles had been over on the season. Victor Robles now is 1-21 for 21 with one walk and one hit by pitch on the season, but at least he did get off the schneid with that hit in the Nats three-run second on Sunday afternoon. He also, by the way, got jobbed in the top of the eighth. He struck out for the third out, but the home plate umpire, Ed Hickox, must have had like Easter dinner plans or something because, man, he had two called strikes in that plate appearance that were atrocious. And look, I know that Victor Robles isn't Ted Williams and isn't going to get the benefit of the doubt on ball strike calls, but still, uh, man, I mean, Ed did Victor no favors in that plate appearance for Victor in the top of the eighth on Sunday afternoon. Uh, by the way, D. Strange Gordon, who was supposed to be the Nats starting center fielder in the 9-4 loss at the Pirates on Thursday evening, but was a late scratch due to illness, uh, he now is on the injured list. Uh, the Nats on Friday placed Strange Gordon on the injured list and recalled outfielder Donovan Casey from AAA Rochester. Every indication is that D. Strange Gordon has COVID-19. The Nats usually specify which injured list they place a player on, i.e. the 10-day injured list or the 60-day injured list. When the Nats do not specify the injured list, that almost always means that the player has been placed on the COVID-19 injured list. So it sure would seem like D. Strange Gordon has COVID. I mean, it's, you know, not that big of a deal, okay? Unlike in the past, we're not talking about the Nats season having to be suspended or, you know, all these Nats having to go into quarantine or anything like that. And that's a good thing. You know, we are making progress with this thing. But yeah, D. Strange Gordon uh, would appear to be out right now due to COVID. So I mentioned the Nats recalling Donovan Casey from AAA Rochester. Donovan Casey is one of the four prospects who the Nats acquired from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the trade package for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner 
last July 30th. Uh, Donovan Casey actually was named the Nats 2021 Minor League Defensive Player of the Year. Now, he's not some like uber prospect. Uh, Donovan Casey is ranked by MLB Pipeline as being just the Nats' number 19 prospect this season is his age 26 season. But how about that? The Nats got back four players from the Dodgers for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner, and already three of the four players are playing for the Nats at the major league level in Josiah Gray, Kbert Ruiz, and Donovan Casey, although Casey did not play in this four-game series at the Pirates. Uh, also, I do want to mention this. Alcides Escobar, he has not looked great in the field so far, but he did start to hit a bit in this series at the Pirates. That was good because Escobar, like Victor Robles, had gotten off to a really bad start. But Alcides Escobar in the 6-4 loss at the Pirates on Saturday evening as an at starting shortstop and number eight batter, two for three with an RBI double, a single, and a walk. Escobar in the 5-3 loss at the Pirates on Sunday afternoon as an at starting shortstop and number seven batter, one for four with a single. He in the three-run second had a one-out opposite field single to no man's land in right field to load the bases. Uh, for better or for worse, Alcides Escobar is an at-starting shortstop, and so he's going to be out there basically every game, so he might as well hit, and uh, hopefully he is getting going here. Remember, Escobar last season was surprisingly productive as a batter for the Nats. I don't know how realistic it is to expect him to do that again this season. I tend to think it's not realistic, but uh, he had really been hurting the Nats offensively. He was better over these last few games. So next up for the Nats is a 10-game homestand, uh, beginning with a four-game series against the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park. Game one scheduled for Monday night at 7.05, but I say scheduled because rain is all over the forecast for the Washington, D.C. area on Monday. The pitching matchup for Monday night is an intriguing one. Josiah Gray versus Madison Bumgarner. And before we call it a show, let's talk Orioles, who over the weekend won a series against the mighty New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Yes, the O's won two of three games over the Yankees. Friday night, a 2-1, 11-inning win. Saturday night, a 5-2 loss. But Sunday afternoon, a 5-0 win as the Orioles, Joe Angel, we're back in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe, back in the win column. Uh, the O's now are three and six on the season. You can always email me, the Algaldi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Stephen Robertson. Right, Stephen, love the show as bad as the Orioles are. They showed grit this weekend against the Yankees. The pitching was there for the most part, and the O's finally got some runs with runners in scoring position. The John Means injury is bad, but hopefully the O's can weather this storm. Thanks for still talking about the O's. Well, you're very welcome, Stephen. As I have said many times, there remain a lot of Orioles fans in the DMV. Uh, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland. I see as much, if not more, Orioles gear as I do Nationals gear. I mean, that's just the truth. So the Orioles offense does remain in a not-so-great place so far this season. The O's through nine games have a team OPS of just 597. But I tell you what, the O's on Sunday afternoon, a five-run bottom of the eighth inning. Now, the five-run eighth came not long after the O's got just completely worked 
by the Yankees starting pitcher, the former Orioles pitcher, Nestor Cortez Jr. Uh, Cortez on Sunday afternoon, five scoreless innings with 12 strikeouts, but great to see the O's put together that five-run bottom of the eighth, a five-run bottom of the eighth that included catcher Robinson Chirinos working a huge two-out, 10-pitch walk. O's manager Brandon Hyde during his post-game press conference raved about that Chirinos 10-pitch walk. Take a listen. Well, Robinson Chirinos won us the game. Without a bat, that was just, uh, it was facing the wise ago who's really good <laughs> and great stuff and puts together, um, you know, just a pro at bat to, to get a walk there, extend innings. I mean, that's what good teams do throughout the order. That's what we need to do more of is, is to be able to battle throughout an at bat. And, you know, Robbie, that was that was really great for our guys to see. Um, just to put together an outstanding at-bat of a really tough reliever in a big spot in the game, a not-given attitude, and earn a walk and allow us to give us Ruggie an opportunity to to drive in a couple runs. Um, so, yeah, that was by far our best offensive inning of the year, and, and it was because of Robbie extending it. Yeah, how about that? Brandon Hyde loving himself. Robinson Chirinos working that two-out, ten-pitch walk in the Orioles' five-run eighth on Sunday afternoon. So I'll get to the John Means injury shortly because, honestly, that is the biggest news with the O's over the last few days. But I tell you, the Orioles' starting pitching was quite good in this series win over the Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. The relief pitching was good in games one and three, but the O's winning this series really does begin with the starting pitching. Uh, Jordan Lyles was good in game one. Lyles in the 2-1 11-inning win on Friday night. One run in five and a third innings. He recorded four strikeouts. He gave up six hits, a double, and five singles. He issued two walks and a hit by pitch. Did throw 91 pitches, but 60 of the 91 pitches were strikes. I mean, he certainly wasn't great, but he was a lot better than he was in his Orioles regular season debut. Uh, Lyles in the Orioles 5-3 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays on April 9th. Five runs in five innings. Uh, One run in five and a third innings is a lot better. Uh, Tyler Wells in game two against the Yankees was good. Wells in the 5-2 loss on Saturday night in his second game this season as a tandem starter for the O's. Four scoreless innings. Uh, He recorded three strikeouts. He allowed just three hits, all of which were singles. He issued two walks. He threw 64 pitches, 43 strikes, versus 21 balls. This is an interesting thing that the O's are doing with Tyler Wells, not only converting him from a reliever to a starter, but trying him out in this tandem start role in which, you know, he'll start a game, but the expectation is like, hey, four innings and that's it. Um, Now, his first start of the season did not go so well. The 8-0 loss at the Rays on April 10th. Wells in that game lasted for just one and two-thirds innings. He gave up four runs in one and two-thirds innings. All four runs came in the bottom of the second inning, but Wells looked a lot better on Saturday night. This is his age 27 season. The O selected Wells from the Minnesota Twins in December 2020 in the 2020 Rule 5 draft. He was a reliever for the O's last season. Wells in the 2021 regular season, 57 innings as a reliever. His ERA was 411, which obviously is nothing special, but he did average 10.3 strikeouts for nine innings. And then Bruce Zimmerman, was good on Sunday afternoon. Zimmerman in game three against the Yankees did quite well. Uh, Zimmerman in this 5 nothing win on Sunday afternoon, five scoreless innings, six strikeouts. Uh, he gave up just four hits, all of which were singles. He issued two walks. He threw 75 pitches, 52 strikes versus 23 balls. Uh, Zimmerman was coming off having done pretty well, although not great 
in his first outing of the season, the 2-0 win over the Milwaukee Brewers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards last Monday afternoon, four scoreless innings, four strikeouts. So it was really good to see the Orioles get the starting pitching that they got in this series win over the Yankees. And the O's are going to need the likes of Jordan Lyles and Tyler Wells and Bruce Zimmerman to keep doing well because John Means is out for a while and maybe is out for the rest of this season. Uh, We have gotten terrible news on John Means over the last few days. So Brandon Hyde in his pregame press conference on Saturday did not commit to Means pitching again in the 2022 season. Quote, I don't know that. That's a question mark right now. I wouldn't expect him to pitch anytime soon. End quote. Uh, Rather ominous stuff right there from Brandon Hyde. So Means in the Orioles 4-2 loss to the Milwaukee Brewers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards this past Wednesday night allowed two runs in four innings on 51 pitches and then left the game due to left forearm tightness. The O's on Friday put Means on the 10-day injured list retroactive to April 14th with a left elbow strain, but the O's on Sunday morning transferred Means to the 60-day injured list with what the team called a left elbow sprain. So the labeling of the injury has changed, but here's the bottom line. Means is dealing with a left elbow injury. And the fact that the O's are certain enough that he's going to be out for long enough to where he's already been transferred from the 10-day IL to the 60-day IL sure seems to indicate that Tommy John surgery could be coming. Now, nothing has been announced. Nothing is official. But, you know, when you take the fact that the O's have already transferred Means to the 60-day L, you add on top of that the way Brandon Hyde was talking on Saturday. I don't know how you arrive at any conclusion other than Tommy John surgery is a distinct possibility for John Means. Or at the very least, some kind of serious surgery is coming for John Means. And this is awful. I mean, this is just terrible for the guy. I'm going to really feel for the guy because he has been the Orioles' best starting pitcher over the last three seasons, you know, especially with what he did in the 2019 and 2021 seasons. Now, he has dealt with a good bit of injury in recent years, so I don't think anyone is exactly shocked that Means is out with this left elbow injury, but nobody's obviously happy about this, and uh, it's bad news. So all the best to John Means. Uh, Hopefully, somehow, some way, this doesn't end up being as bad as we think, but I mean, again, he's been moved to the 60-day IL, so even if this doesn't end up being as bad as we think, he's not pitching again for a very long time, and an Orioles team that already had massive starting pitching questions coming into this season now has even more questions, and you wonder if the John Means situation might expedite the journeys for the Orioles' top pitching prospects, guys like Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall from the minors to the majors. Now, to me, uh, what has happened with John Means should not impact what happens with Rodriguez and Hall. Those guys should not be called up until they're good and ready, okay? And I don't think that the O's are going to let the Means injury dictate what happens with Rodriguez and Hall. But the Means injury does create a void in this Orioles rotation. And so you wonder if a Rodriguez or a Hall, uh, especially Rodriguez, because he certainly seems to be the guy who's going to be called up first. He is the number one pitching prospect in baseball. Uh, You certainly wonder if this could mean that we do end up seeing Grayson Rodriguez at the major league level at least a little sooner than we otherwise would have. Uh, Next up for the O's is a 10-game road trip. Four games at the Oakland A's, three games at the Los Angeles Angels, three games 
at the Yankees. First up is that four-game series at the A's. Game one, late night on Monday night at 9.40. Spencer Watkins will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 295, will feature plenty on the commanders. I have some special stuff planned for you this week, so be on the lookout and the listen out for that. Uh, Also on Tuesday show, I'll talk Capitals. The Caps will be at the Colorado Avalanche Monday night at 9. I'll talk Nationals if they play on Monday night. Uh, The Nats, weather permitting, on Monday night will begin a four-game series with the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park, a 7.05 first pitch. And I'll talk Orioles. Uh, They on Monday night will begin a four-game series at the Oakland A's first pitch at 9.40. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. I don't even like Drake. You don't like the Drake? I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. (laughs) Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.